Good afternoon, dear colleagues, dear ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to introduce um, uh, Rosemary Morgan to you. Rosemary, Rosemary Morgan is one of the two people representing a very interesting initiative, uh, which is called Gender and COVID-19. Today, the other person, Amy Oyekunle, is unfortunately disconnected at the moment. I, I saw her already, but uh, she's at the moment in Nigeria, and there seems to be an internet connection between Nigeria and Austria, and an internet connection issue at the moment. So unfortunately, she's not present yet, but I'm still very positive that she will arrive soon. And we now decided that we would start without her with the general questions, and then hopefully she will join us as quickly as possible. Rosemary, thank you so much for being here. First question, in which time zone are you at the moment? So what's the time at the moment in your area? <laughs> It's 8.30 in the morning for me. So I'm in Baltimore, Maryland, in the east coast of the U.S. Okay, so it's quite early. Still, Okay, so here in, in Vienna, it's uh, 2.30, so we are six hours ahead. Um, and and, and uh, um, Amy would have been or is in Nigeria, so that shows already that this is a very international initiative uh, we are talking about here and we are talking with uh, today. Could you give me a short overview about what gender and COVID-19 exactly is and what you have been doing so far? Sure. So uh, the Gender and COVID-19 project, as it stands now, it's a sort of international consortium of partners across five five uh, research countries. So that's uh, Bangladesh, Kenya, Brazil, Nigeria, DRC, um, and with other with partners as well as like myself and partners in Canada and the United Kingdom, as well as um, Hong Kong and, and uh, China as well. So we do have a really large consortium um, and It really started in February 2020. It started with a smaller group of us coming together for a smaller project funded by the Canadian Institute for Health Research. And that project specifically wanted to focus on understanding. Uh, hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. Welcome <laughs> back. Great Welcome. to see you. <laughs> I'm just explaining the gender and COVID project right now. Okay. Um, so that project. Oh, you're on mute, Amy. Sorry, I had a net power issue with my connection yeah but so good to have you back and we we have just started three minutes ago so you didn't miss too much yet right and rosemary is kindly explaining the overall setup of the project at the moment yes which you know already so yes, it's not do. new <laughs> for you um so it's, we, it was sort of an interesting beginning so as i was mentioning there was a smaller group of academics uh were funded through the canadian institute for health research for looking at the gendered effects of COVID-19 in Canada, China, the United Kingdom, and Hong Kong. And we, a few of us got together and wrote a commentary on the gendered impacts of COVID-19 for The Lancet. And we were only allowed three authors. So we had to put gender and COVID working group as a, as a final author on that. Mm -hmm. And after that, people started contacting us and asking us, what is the gender and COVID working group? And can I join? And we're like, well, let's, let's make this more official. So mm -hmm. we started making the lar uh, more larger gender and COVID working group, which is an informal network uh, of, of academics, researchers, policymakers, students, anybody who wants to join that is interested in gender and COVID. And it's a sort of an email exchange where we, where we share resources and and look for collaborations and we meet monthly and then 
what happened next is uh, the project grew and the next phase of the project, which was funded, which is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, that extended our work to the countries I've already mentioned, Bangladesh, Brazil, Kenya, Nigeria, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, yeah, so it, we really are an international multidisciplinary team of, of academics, researchers really interested in understanding how men and women are and gender minorities are differentially impacted by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. If I didn't miss anything, Europe is missing here, right? So there is no European partner yet? Well, we've had the United Kingdom. Oh, you did. I sorry, I missed that. Okay, yeah. Yes, so that, that's Europe, but it's not EU Europe. Let's put not it like the this. EU yeah. No. Yeah. So that means you would be interested and you would be open to 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 get in contact with with researchers from Europe to extend the network, or is it is it closed now because you have already enough people? Well, the, the gender and COVID working group is slightly different from the project itself, mm -hmm. the research project. So the working group is open to anybody. And we do mm -hmm. have a lot of European based researchers okay. in that. So and mm -hmm. they come monthly, they're doing their own research projects, sharing what, what they're working on. So while mm -hmm. our project is, uh, you know, does only has the United Kingdom. There's a, we do the, the working group, in, which is open for anybody, has it's a much larger extended network. We actually have over 700 members now. Wow. Wow. That's a huge number, right? And, and what is the typical background of the people? Are those medical experts or social sciences or law or what? All or of, or a mixture of everything? All of the above. That's yeah. what makes it so great because. You know, those of us in our project, a lot of us, well, we were health researchers or political economists. Now we have, you know, people from all backgrounds, you know, mm -hmm. that are coming, social scientists, even, you know, we have doctors that, you know, people that are practicing physicians and are doing research. Mm -hmm. It's because COVID-19 has affect, affected all dy dynamics of life. We've got all disciplines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and if you, if I may ask so naively, um, what would could you tell us very briefly some of the main areas of interest that you are working on? So, what would be a typical question that would be of relevance to the to the network? And and do you do you have outcomes that you would like and would be able to share with us? So, the most important messages so far. Sure, maybe I will pass this question, Amy, over to you um, to talk about sort of, we're, we're focusing on the project now, which is a mm -hmm. little different than the working group. So mm -hmm. thinking about our research questions in the project. Um, I, I should add very quickly before I go into that, that I'm an activist. So I'm a practitioner in NGO and development. So completely different from Rosemary, who's the university or an academic. So. Mm -hmm. The the, the, the the network is all welcoming women from NGOs, uh, men even, and interested in gender. So a typical question we'll be looking at is we wanted to understand what were the health, social, and economic impacts of diseases, specifically of COVID-19 pandemic, um, on, you know, on men, women, girls and boys, because we recognize again, and this was missing in the initial knee-jerk reaction of many of our countries, was that the effect of the pandemic was not homogeneous. It was, it was not, oh, everybody was sick and, and, and 
Uh, women are not sick, men are sick. No, it affected people differently. And this is one of the things that we wanted to bring out, not just for the pandemic, but for any uh, disease outbreak. That it actually does have an impact, a gendered impact that needs to be looked at. We wanted to see how um, we wanted to see how this gendered impact were considered and how governments or, or institutions, organizations were mitigating against some of this risk. And one of the things that we saw was, again, not really. So yes, we know COVID-19 is here. We're preparing vaccines. We're preparing um, lockdown pandemic plans, but we're not thinking about how it affects or how it would affect. Uh, another question that we want, wanted to look at was, particularly in the form of public health, wanted to see how this um, out, outbreak was affecting secondary and socioeconomic impacts. This was important, particularly now that many people in many countries, they're talking about building back or they're talking about the pandemic is over. It's not over, but let's just say that it, for the sake of argument that many are saying that it is, how are you incorporating the lessons that were learned and recording some of this real-time gendered impacts and using that to build for the future? So those were some of the questions that we tried to look at. Um, we looked at it in again across the different countries. So in Nigeria, for example, we looked at different sect, um, um, segments. So we looked at women in the informal market. We looked at women in um, um, in IDP situations, not really not extensively, but we wanted to look at what was some of the impact. We looked at women, uh, persons with disability, not just men, women, but men and women with disability. And our, my colleague in Kenya, she looked at um, women and girls um, that are in slum communities. I mean, just cuts across different uh, sectors, not just women in the informal uh, formal sector, but in the informal sector as well. Mm -hmm. And would you say that the outcome of uh, of your research is uh, bring similar, um, um, I would say, lessons to learn everywhere in the world, or are there significant differences when it comes to the different regions that you had a closer look into? Well, there were similar lessons to learn, and similar in the sense that um, one of the things that we found was countries that were not as prepared. And um, Rosemary will talk about that in a second. The gen, uh, they didn't have a, a gender responsive pandemic plan. For mm -hmm. countries that didn't have that, we found that those countries experienced the same sort of outcomes in terms of the impact of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a typical example. Many countries that went into the lockdown uh, didn't adequately plan for uh, um, key features of sexual and reproductive health. They didn't adequately plan for issues of um, gender-based violence. It wasn't something they thought about. So, for example, in Nigeria, it was a very militaristic approach to pandemic. Close the airport, close market, no movement. And they even brought out the military to enforce mm -hmm. some of these um, um, responses. And that in itself was quite um, um, disastrous because for many women who couldn't you know, didn't plan or couldn't access. They had their goods destroyed, confiscated. Some of them experienced abuse. All of this within 
the scope of preparing for a pandemic. And we saw that also in Kenya, we saw that in Bangladesh, we saw that in countries that didn't have a very accurate plan. And this vis-a-vis -vis Canada or the UK, they did have some similar similarities with regards to the, the pandemic affecting women, particularly working mothers uh, and women in the same manner. They had to deal with house care, um, caretaking issues. They had to deal with work issues. They had to face um, some sort of um, bearing double burdens of working at home and also caretaking, which was not adequately planned for. Mm -hmm. However, the I, I would say that what I found was the intensity of the of the effect was very different um, compared to you know Africa compared to certain countries like Canada or or the UK. Canada, for instance, has a a semblance of a gender responsive approach mm -hmm. and outlook in terms of how um, they they approached development in their country. But my colleague Julia Smith will tell you that no, it wasn't that different. They still had issues, and mm -hmm. I do agree. But this is the difference was around the intensity of mm -hmm. the impact and the recovery afterwards. Mm -hmm. Rosemary, I don't know if you have something to add. Yeah, I would definitely agree with with that and. It's interesting, the, the patterns and sort of the themes that we're seeing across countries, high, middle and low income countries are very similar. So, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of if you're looking at the, the higher, higher level of, of, you know, these themes, we've got we're called we're distinguishing them between primary and secondary impacts. So primary mm -hmm. impacts are very much related to things like vaccination rates, hospitalizations, deaths, whereas secondary impacts are a lot of what, what Amy was talking about, the, the social, economic, non-COVID-19 related health impacts. So we're seeing broad themes like women are disproportionately being impacted by the, by the secondary impacts. So mm -hmm economic insecurity, for example, across everywhere, you know, men and women, of course, are both being affected, but women are being disproportionately affected for, for various reasons. Um, and as well as thinking about informal care responsibilities when, when, when school was closed, when people couldn't go into work, who picked up that, who picked up that mm -hmm. responsibility? Mm -hmm. Women, you know, healthcare workers is a huge topic that we're looking at. Majority of healthcare workers are women everywhere. Uh, and they have these dual care responsibilities. So you have now these extra burden at home and extra burden at work huge mental health crisis. And this is really impacting women healthcare workers, mm -hmm. girls education, you know, with girl people not going to school. I, I do think there's some specific, quite di big differences between um, high, middle and low income countries with education. Amy can probably, you can probably talk about this bit more, but in, in countries in, in East, East Africa, for example, Sub-Saharan Africa, we're seeing many girls, you know, being dropped, taken out of school, hmm. increases in early child marriage, increases in teenage pregnancy. This is sort of key, I think, regional differences. But uh, overall, we are seeing these sort of larger themes. So in whether we're talking about in Europe or North America or or in, in Africa, these a lot of these themes still hold true. But as Amy was saying, when you that what's really different is the severity sometimes on the ground but also 
when we're bringing in that this intersectional lens, and by that I mean thinking about how gender is intersecting with people, other social identities like age, race, class, disability, who is most marginalized is different in these contexts, right? And you've got to bring in that contextual intersectional lens to be able to understand that. And while we've seen these larger patterns, yes, you have to go into each country to understand exactly how they're playing out on the ground. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and one instrument I think that you developed in order to get a closer look and a better understanding is a, a specific matrix, a specific matrix that you call gender analysis matrix, if I'm not mistaken. Could you explain to us a little bit more in detail what this is and how you're using it? Sure. So yeah, we have a number of tools on our website. So the gender analysis matrix is one of them. Another one that Amy alluded to was uh, the, the gender responsive pandemic plan tool mm -hmm. that we looked at. But with, with the matrix itself, it's, a, it's sort of a methodology to type the tool that people can use to, you know, and it's really to assist in the application of a gender analysis. So it can mm -hmm. be used in any topic, not just, not just pandemics, not just health. And I use them very much uh, in all my all my work when I'm bringing in a gender lens. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's you know the matrix is the matrix that we have on the website is really advancing matrices from particularly from the World Health Organization. So this is a tool that's been around for a while, and we we're just sort of adapting on it and and building on it. And it is essentially a table. And what it does is it looks at key gender analysis domains against topic domains. So what I mean by gender analysis domains is we're, we're using established gender frameworks, which ask the question, what are, what are the ways in which gender power relations manifest as inequities, right, that we know? And, and for example, they manifest as, an, as inequitable access to resources, in equitable norms, values, beliefs, inequitable roles and practices, inequitable decision-making power autonomy. So the gender analysis framework, those are, the, those are the domains. So we look at those against health topic domains. In case of COVID-19, we were interested in vulnerability to infection, exposure, the health, social, economic impact. So in a way, it, and you can use it to brainstorm, like what might these impacts be? You know, you're using this table and it's really a way for you to systematically do this, to make sure you're systematically looking across the important domains. And you can use it to brainstorm, but then you can also use it to, to table evidence. So that's on the website. What we've done is what you'll see is the actual evidence. So looking across the domains, we have mapped and shown that the different gendered impacts or responses of the of governments against these different um, different domains. So we used it to conduct a rapid real time analysis while the pandemic was unfolding mm -hmm. to really examine these gendered effects. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I mean, I use it as a tool. It's meant to be adapted. Uh, you can use it at various stages but it's really to apply that systematic lens. Yeah. And as Amy just stated rightly before, the pandemic is not over yet. So are you, are you going to use it in, in the upcoming months as well? And, and will there be any follow-up uh, um, publications coming out of this that you are planning at the moment? Definitely. Good yes. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> Definitely yes to follow-up publications. I think there's a lot of publications that will be coming out of the project, not just from mm -hmm. the matrix, but from all, mm -hmm. all the data collection. 
Uh, will we continue to use it? I mean, that depends on continued funding for the project. I mean, mm-hmm. I will definitely continue to use a matrix and all my other projects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, as would I, as would I, I mean, it, the, 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 the reality is a lot of people, when they think gender or hair gender, they, and, and, and I guess rightly so for some, they focus only on women and just, oh yeah, it's all about women. And, and what the matrix does is it allows you to look critically at domains, uh, access to vaccine, which to be honest is part of the, you know, the ongoing uh, post-COVID conversation, isn't it? Access to vaccine, wealthy countries versus countries that are not doing so well. Who is accessing it? How are they accessing it? Is it equitable? Um, are women able to access vaccine vis-a-vis men? Those are questions that are real time. Those are questions that are still ongoing. Those are questions that are current. I would definitely use it not just for health-related work, but even across board in, in whatever we are talking about. I mean, we talked a little bit about war before Rosemary came in. Again, when you use a matrix of that manner, you're looking at who is most affected by, mm. um, 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 who's going to be most affected by conflict, how is it affecting men vis-a-vis women. So for, for gender practitioners like myself, it's a wonderful tool that I will encourage everyone to just look at and see because then it just gives you a broader picture mm-hmm. of where things lie um how men are affected how women are affected how boys and girls are affected and this goes to speak to what rosemary talked about with regards to intersectionality and age um uh, uh, as well so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Please, definitely. Rosemary, you just said that it would also depend a little bit on the funding, um, uh, whether and in how far you would be able to continue with your work. So are you applying for funding at the moment? or, And if so, where? Yeah, that's the intention. I mean, uh, I'm, I work at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, which is a soft money institution. I am always applying for funding. Yeah. Like, um, like both, uh, <laughs> almost all academics, right? I mean, it's, just, I, I, it's yes. universal everywhere, right? So <laughs> Exactly. However, we absolutely do want to continue on this work where we mm-hmm. can. It's so important. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you both mentioned, the pandemic's not over. Mm-hmm. We do need to move, think about moving into the recovery phase. Yes. How are we, you know, the COVID-19 has, we, we know that it's exacerbated inequities. It's, mm-hmm. you know, created new ones, but also more so exacerbated existing ones. And mm-hmm. we need to understand how we now approach that. How do we respond to it? We absolutely want to continue this work and, you know, we mm-hmm. will be looking for additional funding. Okay. And are you also planning or have you planned or have you perhaps already worked on the on the legal implications of the research questions that you have? So in how far the law might be a relevant factor in 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 gender related aspects of fighting against the pandemic and in how far that would need to be changed? Was that of interest to you or will it be of interest? I <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I mean that that was that was key. That was probably even one of the first things that we looked at, wasn't it, Rosemary? That we looked at how do countries' uh, legal framework, uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, how do their framework, uh, pandemic response framework, how how is it gendered, if at all, mm-hmm. um, and how and making recommendations for mm-hmm. some of those gaps that we identified. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and part of what we want to continue, if 
we get continue, uh, funding, hopefully, is to look at how that has been um, changed. So, mm -hmm. for example, we prepared um, uh, briefs uh, for countries, um, looking at their uh, the response plan of the country, uh, and made critical uh, recommendations across the different domains. Um, and we we that are in country use that as advocacy as an advocacy tool for mm. engaging the government specific institutions of health and of gender engaging with civil society and development partners to say look we have done this analysis of the legal framework but also of the response itself mm. and these are some of the issues that we identified these are the recommendations that were made not necessarily not only from us the, the researchers but across um 700 researchers um that are on the platform Mm -hmm. These are the changes, and we would like you to look into this with an aim to change in it. So that was one of the key things that we did, um, and we'll continue to use those tools to advocate for better um, response plan across board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, the none of us are legal experts on the, on the team, but, you know, the law is such an important component, especially as we're moving into response and recovery. And when we're thinking about things like gender inequities and and the fact that you know COVID nineteen has really shone light on on not mm -hmm. on gender and other inequities, and we need tools to address those, and the law is one of those tools for mm -hmm. absolutely. And we know that even before COVID nineteen, thinking about tool, how can the law be used to encourage women's participation in in the, in the workforce? Right. The law has been absolutely instrumental in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, we know from evidence things that are needed to get more women in the workforce. We need um, employment protections. We need, you know, particularly for part time and low paid workers. We need that now more than ever with, with COVID-19. Flexible working rate arrangements, thinking about, you know, equal pay, things like that and how. Uh, you know, maternity, paternity leave, all of these things are conducive for supporting women to be in the workforce, which mm -hmm. has major positive implications across, you know, across multiple domains. And the law has absolutely been instrumental. So it's now thinking, how can the law be used to address some of these, especially some of these inequities that we're seeing? And, it, mm -hmm. you know, the law is going to look different in each country. You know, we, we mentioned briefly, one of the huge gendered impacts is related to girls' education, early childhood marriage, and, and early pregnancy now. Mm -hmm. And how can the law be used in some of these contexts to prevent all of that from happening, mm -hmm. right? Because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because law and policy, and sometimes when we talk about normative change and, and gender and normative change, we talk about sometimes norms change before the law does, but sometimes mm -hmm. law needs to law changes before the norm, norms do. Mm -hmm. And in some cases in a lot, especially around gender, it's been law changing first before norms on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So the law absolutely has a role to play and, and should really be thinking about what are some of these huge impacts? What is the policy? What are the approaches that we need to address them? And how can law play a, a role in that? I see. So in short, if someone of the listeners here has a legal background, and some of them do, right, because uh, many of the listeners have, have studied law, uh, they should contact you, or they could contact you, and they could try to bring in their expertise, correct? 
Could, if, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they could. Great. Let me ask a similar question again, if I may, uh, one going mainly to Amy, I think, because Amy, you said that you see yourself also as an activist and not only as a researcher. So my question then would be, um, do you think, how do you address policymakers um, at the moment about the outcomes? And are you happy with how policymakers read and understand what you have been doing so far? Or is there some room for improvement here? Definitely is a room for improvement. Um, in the heat of the pandemic, um, policymakers were, I mean, everybody, I mean, it was something that hit everybody. So it was something that everybody was afraid. Um, some of the policies that were developed, um, a few were quite draconian. Um, and there was no space at the time um, to engage. I mean, there was space, but the priority was, you know, making sure that people are safe uh, and um, to stop people from catching the uh, virus. Now there's a bit of release or respite. Um, and now is the time to engage policy makers in a way that they understand. And one of the things that is a huge um, challenge for policymakers is understanding uh, gender jargon, if I would put it that way, in a way that makes sense to them. So making it very real for them, making them understand that these are comments and feedbacks from citizens and people that actually experience that, but also giving them um, um, information that is easy and bite-sized to chew. So for example, if you gave a policy and says, oh, you know, um, you have to, women were affected during the, the, the pandemic, they couldn't informal market women. He would say, what does that mean to me? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed mm -hmm. to engage? But looking at current and existing structures to put little things into yourself, for example, asking um, um, workers or asking offices to consider childcare, flexible working hours like Rosemary mentioned, or even protection. One of the key things that we, we lacked was social protection. We mm -hmm. didn't have it or the database wasn't updated. So that is something to easily engage policymakers with. So why I'm particularly um, pleased with this project was that it gave you um, real-time information, but also practical tools that we could use to engage the policymakers. Mm -hmm. As an activist, I see other NGOs or other women-led groups, again, going through that same motion of how do we engage? Mm -hmm. So for me, this is something that I'm disseminating with other NGO practitioners to say, in your field, whether it is in um, environment, whether it is in climate change, whether it's in girls' education, like Rosemary mentioned, or whether it's in health, these are some of the things that came out and this is how to engage with the policyholders. Mm -hmm. I am frustrated with policyholders or policymakers because like I said, everybody thinks the pandemic is over so we don't need to talk about COVID-19. You are bringing mm -hmm. us back to the past. So there's that constant need to put it on the front burner. Mm -hmm. There's a constant need to kind of reiterate and be very clear because we have specific outcomes that we want to see. One of that being those policies that were not helpful to be changed and some of the things around monitoring and reporting around pandemic responses to be clearly outlined. Mm -hmm. And finally, I think one of the things that we're looking at is 
part of the funding because there was a lot of money that was given. Nigeria got a lot of loans, a lot of money around COVID-19 pandemic. Again, this is a time to follow the money and see where did, where that went to. Did it go to appropriate um, uh, beneficiaries? How is that helping? Uh, and basically link that back to uh, appropriate response. So that's not for me to do, but for other NGOs or other organizations working in that field. But it's all connected, Nicholas. So for me, this is how the activism begins. The activism is real. It's not just preparing a research that sits on a shelf somewhere and yeah. gathers dust till the next pandemic, but mm-hmm. it's something that is live and constantly evolving um, and changing, like Rosemary said, the norms, the culture, and eventually the policies and laws around women's lives. Yeah. I would also like to ask a little bit more about this uh, this interplay between activism and academic research, because one area where those two things meet are academia, right, and academic environments. Uh, and at least in my experience, um, academia has been um, an, a, a working environment where gender-related impacts of the pandemic can be seen extremely visibly and clearly. Um, and, and I would like to ask both of you whether you have done research that you can report on, on the, on the, on, on the situation of academics and of students um, in the pandemic, and whether this is another area where you could now start or where you want to start to be a little bit more activistic, let's call it like this. <laughs> um, Rosemary, do you want to take that and then I finish? Sure. Uh, sure. So I'm not, uh, our project, we're not doing specific research in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, my, and I'm not either, but of course we are aware, and I mean, I'm, we're living it, we're aware you know, mm-hmm. the, the gender inequities. And I, you know, I've done work pre-COVID-19 on gender inequities within within academia, mm-hmm. both in terms of, I've got a few couple of papers, I've had a paper look exploring authorship and, you know, who's authoring who papers, who's not a paper about mm-hmm. um, grant, the grant process and how, you know, women who gets grants versus women or men. And another area also looked at was, awards, public health, global health awards, and who got mm. awards or not. And mm. I mean, it's shocker in all three of those topics, you know, women were, were dis- disproportionate or disadvantaged um, disproportionately. And COVID-19 has only made it worse, right? Mm. And we, we do have colleagues, you know, especially in the wider gender and COVID working group working on this. I've seen a few papers coming out exploring mm. Things like authorships, and I, you know, I'm sure we'll see things about who was applying for grants and not who was awarded the grants during COVID-19. There was a mm-hmm. huge amount of money and grants, you know, during that time to study COVID, and you know, women were putting in a lot less, um, pay, you know, papers, first author papers during this time. Mm-hmm. And some universities have responded, especially with those that were, you know, on the tenure track clock. You have a certain amount of time to meet mm-hmm. a certain amount of outputs and expectations. And so they paused that clock during mm-hmm. COVID-19 because particularly, I don't know what that's going to look like later on. So they paused the clock. So it, what it means is women will have more time to get it, but men still will have a lot more outputs, mm-hmm. like disproportionately so. So it's unlikely that they're going to be promoted, advanced at higher rates. And these are things mm-hmm. that we're going to need to address Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, and we're probably going to see we're probably going to see the effects of this way that long term down the line yeah. of you know women the proportion of women 
in higher roles and not to mention underrepresented minority women, right? Mm -hmm. Black, indigenous, persons of color, women, um, even worse, Mm -hmm. even, you know, with men as well um, Mm -hmm. that are underrepresented minority, much worse in higher level positions. And I think it's, it's probably going to get continue. I don't think it's going to improve. Let's just say, because the COVID-19 is not going to help the situation and it is things we need to address. I think there's a thin line between activism and academic. I mean, mm-hmm. to be honest, every academic should be an activist <laughs> and, every, and vice versa. But I, you, being part of this research has, 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 I mean, with activists, we tend to, we do research, but we tend to just basically implement and, you know, hit the streets, you know, pound the pavement and this is what we want. But, being part of this research has has opened the the like Rosemary said a lot of in, inequalities that exist, but also the opportunities that arise when you have information, real time information that and the data that speaks to um, what you are saying, but how to use it. And so I would encourage anyone that is in the academic, you can engage in research and 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 be, uh, I mean, here we have different kinds of activism. We have those who are physical and those who are online, but either way, activism is a process of speaking about something that you really believe mm. and, and you really want to see a change in. So um, I, I, I would say that it's encouraged. It's really, really a thin line, but perhaps speaking to your question of, have we had any paper or any work. Rosemary, it's, it is really good to, for us to think about that. We did have something around education, but it was, again, for secondary schools, girls in base uh, secondary schools education. I don't think we did any that was major for universities um, or higher education or tertiary education. And it is something that I know that that, that would be useful to look at. Um, perhaps there's a paper out there already, but it is encouraging to look at that. So mm-hmm. I probably would look out for that, Nicholas, mm-hmm. and see. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Amy, which brings me probably to the last question from my perspective. And that's a very simple one now. If someone is interested in your work and in the topic and is an academic or is an activist, what would be the most convenient way to, to, to support your work or to get connected with your work what should people do should it be simply subscribe to the email list or what what would you suggest that they should do yeah i i think that's the first so rosemary can answer that she's great with that (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh anyone is welcome to join the gender and covid19 working group and it has you know this group has been really great in bringing people together across, from different disciplines, particularly, you know, that are share passion, you know, and I like your question about academia and activism is so important because I think it's something that we all, we all need to do, you know, and work together and collaborate because we're not, you know, doing it on our own, you know, it's, we're not going to have nearly as much impact, but if we can come together and, and uh, pool our knowledge and our resources and, and build collaborations, I think there's a much higher chance for us to have a larger impact. And I think the COVID-19 working group has allowed us to do that. So everyone, everyone can find information about the working group on our website. Um, you could just Google gender and COVID, it, you'll likely find it, but the website is www.genderandcovid.com dash 19.org 
you know, and there's, you can find the information there. You can request to join the working group. The request will go to me actually on our, on our website, on our email. So I will see, I will see that and add, add you to it. And in the working group, we have a number of active subgroups working on different topics. We've got a subgroup that's on gender-based violence. There's a subgroup looking at men and um, impact on men. There's a, a subgroup, you know, looking at livelihoods <laughs> and healthy. There's so many different ones. So, and we hold monthly meetings where people come and present and we talk about issues. We've just recently held an internal conference um, where we shared a lot of work that's doing it and really look forward thinking about what can we, what should we be doing about this? And we will be um, looking at developing a call to action from that based on everyone's sort of collective inputs. Um, and uh, those in academia, we're always looking for collaborations, right? And, and thinking through different projects and, and obviously we want to do things that will have impact. So that's why, you know, building our networks and collaborating is so important. Mm -hmm. And I have nothing to add to that. (laughs) Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you so much, Rosemary. Uh, Is there anything else that you, you want to share with us? Anything that I should have asked you? Or did we cover everything? Um, I, th- I think you covered most things, Nicholas, but for the life of me, I can't remember anything, but I do encourage everyone to go um, to the website to look at what's there. They have various different countries. I doubt if there'll be any country that we haven't gotten because even from... Um, I wouldn't say that. There might be well, some. Actually, there might be some, but also we, we the linkage with, um, apart from the gender and COVID-19 platform, we link very closely with other uh, organizations that were also involved or part of um, developing or, or researching on the impact of COVID. Um, a few of them um, uh, were supported also by the Gates Foundation. So whether it's at the country or at the international level, there are different papers. So I encourage mm-hmm. them to look at that and, and see um, what they need or how they can also support. Yeah, and I guess just a you know, we work in this space. So sometimes people ask us about, are people looking at gender? Are people, you know, um, is it a, it's a lens that they're taking to their work? And it's hard for us to really say yes or no, because it's what we see all the time. It's those people that we're engaging. But if, we, if I talk to someone not in my space, the question is no, often people aren't. So we do need that advocacy. I mean, at a minimum, we're still to this day talking about the need for sex and gender desegregated data, you know, that's collected and reported that way. And so many people aren't doing it. They weren't doing it in the beginning of the pandemic. You know, people collect it, but often don't report it or sometimes weren't collecting it. And the fact that we're still asking for this, you know, because if we don't have the data, we don't have the evidence, we're not going to know exactly what the impacts are to be able to make a difference. So mm-hmm. bringing in this lens is so important for your work and to advocate for people bringing in that lens. And I think any time that you we're, we're dealing with people, no matter who pe- those people are, a gender lens is relevant because gender affects everybody. Men, yeah. women, boys, girls, gender minorities. It affects absolutely everybody. So this mm-hmm. we should have this lens and we can't treat all people the same. 
we, you yeah. know, which is why the intersectional lens now becomes so important. So we're not treating all men the same or all women the same. Yeah. So my, my call would be for everybody to really, you know, learn how to bring in a, a gender and intersectional lens and advocate for it. And at a minimum, just demand for sex and gender desegregated data, asking questions about how people are differentially impacted. I think that as a baseline is so important. Yeah. So this is an important point and it's a good point to end this conversation with, I think, because it's just the starting point for a lot of more conversations to come. Thank you so much to both of you, Amy and Rosemary, for investing so much time into this. Thank you to all of you who listened to this. Um, I appreciate this. Kindly stay connected, stay interested, and in particular, stay as healthy or become as healthy as possible, as quickly as possible. All the best to all of you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.